2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, That's where we're going to be today. Title of the message is Catastrophic Failure. Catastrophic Failure. How many of you have seen the movie Apollo 13? Show of hands here. Almost everybody, right? How many of you were old enough to actually remember the events of Apollo 13 as they unfolded live? Uh, I was, um, it was a month before my sixth birthday uh, when Apollo 13 occurred. It was April 1970. And, uh, you know, everybody knows the story, right? Houston, we have a problem. And, uh, and you know... <laughs> The event happened suddenly, as explosions tend to do. You know, explosions are sudden events by definition. And they're on the way. But, but what happened was that the number two oxygen tank exploded when they went to do a cryogenic stir. The way that they were constructed and all, basically the context of that tank needed to be stirred. And there was a fan internally that was designed. They'd flip a switch and the, the, the fan would go on. Well, what happened was they flipped the switch and the thing blew up. And the reason it blew up didn't stem from that moment, that there wasn't a failure at that particular time. The failure, you trace it back, it was five years earlier that that explosion actually occurred in the sense that it was, it was inevitable, that they were going to flip that switch and that was going to be a bomb that went off. Why? Well, because the tank was dropped. And when the tank was dropped five years before, one of the vent tubes in it was misaligned, which caused it not to vent properly, which caused the internal pressure to build up within, within the tank. And then what happened was that increased pressure caused increased temperature within the tank, which caused the wires that were inside the tank to melt so that when they flipped the switch, it was a bomb waiting to happen. And that's exactly what happened. They flipped the switch, boom, it went... And of course, you know the rest of the story. Next four days was a, tr- was a frantic, you know, process trying to get our astronauts home safely. And thank God they did. It was called the uh, most successful failure uh, that the space agency has ever known. But, you know, just like the Apollo 13 disaster, ex- the, 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 in that the explosion was set in motion years before, was pretty much made a certainty years before. That's exactly what we're going to see today in 2 Samuel chapter 11. See, because here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is going to explode today. And, and he's just, boom, he's just a bomb waiting to happen. He's going to commit adultery with a gal named Bathsheba. Uh, ultimately, he's going to murder her husband to cover it up. Uh, David, the, the man after God's own heart, is going to have a catastrophic failure. And so there's a lot for us to learn here in the life of David to see his catastrophic failure and for us, hopefully, God willing, to avoid our own catastrophic failure. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, we pick it up, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. See, what would happen in this day and age is that wars were fought seasonally. They basically would go home for the winter. They'd say, oh, you know what? It's it's not, the the weather isn't good. We're going to go and take a break. We'll get right back to you when when it stops raining kind of deal. Um, And uh, and so this is what happened. It's now the springtime. It's time to, to go back to battle. And this particular spring, it's open season on the people of Amman. Why? 
Well, if you were with us last week, you know the drill. You know what's going on. The, 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 the man, Hanun, who had taken over the, the rule of Ammon, what is modern-day Jordan, um, his father died. He took over the rule. David, having compassion on the guy, wants to send some ambassadors to him to, to offer him comfort. And uh, what happens is, Hanun, he sees these guys coming, and his advisors go and whisper in his ear, and they're like, hey, you know, these, this, David doesn't really care about you or your dad. He just wants to spy out the land. Now, that's not what's going on, but that's what the voice that he listens to. And so what he ends up doing is shaming these people that came uh, and, and, and all, and, and so shaves off half their beard, cuts their, you know, their, their garments off at the waist so that, you know, they're, they're just bare from the bottom downward, you know, just complete shame and humiliation, sends them packing, and then on top of that realizes, oh, you know what, that's probably not going to make David all that happy, so what do they do? They go out and they hire the Syrians um, to, to be their hired, you know, help, as it were, to go and actually fight against David. No good deed goes, unter- goes, goes unpunished, you know. And so this is all what's going down. And so what happens then is that D- Israel then responds. They go and they fight against this imminent attack that's being pressed now wrongfully. And, uh, and so in, in the fighting against them, they divide their forces because the people of Oman are coming from one side, the hired you know, assassins, the Syrians are coming from another. And so what happens then is that when they divide their forces, they repel the attack. And the people from Amman, they, they go running back, and uh, they're, uh, they're in uh, Amman, and they're in, the, in Rabah, which is their main city. And this is where they've, they've retreated to. And the Syrians also retreated, but they began to regroup. And so what David did last week, if you were here with us, you saw that as the Syrians are regrouping, and these are the special forces, these are the most imminent threats, so David himself goes out to lead the battle, and they have victory over the Syrians, and they, and they put them down, and, and they actually subdue them. But what happened then was the people of Ramah, uh, Joab, who took his forces, and once, you know, the, the people there, or the people of Ammon, uh, Ammon, once they got them back to their area, they just left them there, and they came back to Jerusalem. So, so David's got unfinished business, that's the point. So it's now the springtime, it's the time when, when kings go off to war, and so Israel now is saying, we got unfinished business with the people of Ammon. So we, we, we need to go there, need to go besiege Rabbah, we need to go take care of it. And so this is exactly what they set out to do. Now, the way that they would besiege someone is that they would surround the enemy, they would cut off all of their resources, and they would wait them out. So this is what they're doing, but... The text pointedly notes that David remained in Jerusalem. Now the implication here is that David is not where he should have been. That's the big idea. That's what you got to come away from chapter one, or from verse 1 of chapter 11, realizing the Bible is flashing a big neon light, taking out a highlighter and saying, you know, this is when kings are supposed to be at war and David is shucking his respos. David is sitting at home when he ought to be out in the battle. Because that's the duty of a king. It's when kings go off to war. If you read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that was the premise under which Israel got their king. This, this guy's going to go before us. This guy's going to fight our battles. 
And David's supposed to be a picture of Jesus Christ who goes before us and fights our battles. So there's a fundamental problem here. David is starting to slack off. It's been said that the sins you commit tomorrow are often the results of sins of omission today. The sins of commission are often the sins of omission. And so this is what's going on here. It would seem, by the way, that God was warning David about this uh, back in chapter 10. When we go through that, you know, we see that the Syrians, when, when they are originally repelled, they go and they regroup, and now they're going to attack again. And when are they ultimately defeated? Well, they were ultimately defeated when David himself went out and led the fight. That's when the Syrians were, were defeated. That's when they were subjected to Israel and to, to Israel's rule. And so, you know, God there seems to have been sending David a message in chapter 10. Just, to, just hey, listen, David, victory is going to require your personal attention. You might, if you're taking notes, you might just want to write that down. Victory requires my personal attention. Well, David didn't get the memo. He didn't get the memo, and now when he should have been at war, he stays home. First point, by the way, today, if you're taking notes, is that defeat begins with inattention. Defeat in your life, defeat in my life, it begins when we are inattentive. Peter said this in 1 Peter 5.8. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now that phrase, walks about, it's very interesting. In the, in the original language, it's, it, in the Greek, it's, it's peripateo. That's the word in the Greek. So we all know what that means, right? So we can just move on. No, here's, here's what it means in the, in the Greek, that, that phrase walked about. It means to walk with aim and with purpose. It means to make due use of opportunities, okay? And certainly, this is what Satan does with you and me. This is what our enemy does. Our enemy walks about with aim and with purpose. Our enemy makes due use of the opportunities that we give to him. We took a, a relief trip to the Philippines a couple of Thanksgivings ago. Uh, typhoon came and hit and destroyed, and they, they, you know there was a lot of damage, a lot of loss of life. And so we put a team together, and we had a lot of relief supplies. It was crazy. We actually took two chainsaws on the plane with us over to in our checked luggage. You know, it's like you know you're taking a couple of chainsaws. Crazy, but the people of Philippine Airlines, they they you know they knew we were going over to offer help and all, and so they just sort of looked the other way as we brought all of these relief supplies. Um, and so we're going over there. So we've got just this ton of stuff, all this gear, and because of we're, we're going to. Um, uh, to the island of Samar, and because of the damage from the, from the tsunami, the airport was shut down. So we had to actually fly to Cebu from Manila, and we had to take a ferry from, from Cebu to Manila. It was an overnight ferry. And, and notoriously, what was happening with people is that they were being robbed left and right because the, there was such devastation, and the people were kind of in a desperate situation that the relief workers were coming. Some relief workers were even being shot and killed because the people wanted to steal the supplies that they had. So we're on this overnight ferry. And, and we, you know, we're the only ones there with 
a boatload of stuff, no pun intended, but that's, you know, we've got all this gear. So I, I, got, I pulled the team all together. Everybody's looking at us in this big pile of stuff that we've got. And I pulled everybody together. I go, look, uh, we're going to go to sleep here in a few hours, and this stuff's going to disappear, you know, being on a boat or not. It's going to disappear. So we're either going to have to post a watch or... There's one stateroom that's up for grabs. We're going to need to go run and see if they'll let us upgrade to that stateroom so we can put all of our stuff in that stateroom. And so we got all of the stuff to go in the stateroom and, and all. And, and so a couple of the guys, they, they slept in the stateroom with the stuff and then that left the rest of us. We didn't have to take shifts. We didn't have to stay up all night watching the stuff. Well, why did we do this? Well, because there were those around us that wanted to, with aim and purpose, Make due use of the opportunity of this stuff being there. So that's what the enemy does with you and me. He's got aim, he's got purpose, and he wants to make the due use of the opportunities that you give him, and so we need to be on the ball. This is why Paul warned the Ephesians, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. That word circumspectly means to walk with your head on a swivel, to be understanding that Look, there's an enemy that's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for who he's going to devour. And we have to walk with our head on a swivel because, listen, the enemy in your life is a lot more pervasive than you realize that he is. See, because the thing is, is that God's omnipresent. That means God is everywhere all the time. And a lot of times we'll ascribe to Satan attributes that he doesn't possess, You know, Satan can't be everywhere all the time. People say, oh, you know, the devil was tempting me. I doubt it. I doubt it. Because he can only be one place at a time, and there's bigger fish to fry than you, quite frankly. So it's probably not the devil himself that has been tempting you. But listen, the devil doesn't work alone. He is a counterfeiter, by the way. All of the attributes of God, all of the things of God, Satan tries to counterfeit. And so what happens then is that God can be everywhere all the time. What does Satan do? Well, he's got a third of the angels that fell with him. So if Satan is not directly attacking you, he has a third of the angels at his his disposal that they can be assigned to attack you, to tempt you, to lead you into sin. Paul talked about this in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, listen, our battle is against principalities and powers. It's against Satan and it's against the demonic forces of this world. And so there, there is, quite possibly, the, the opportunity or the occasions when the demonic realm is attacking you directly. Probably not Satan himself, but certainly one of the demons. Now, over and above that, there's another way that we're attacked. There, there is a sinful world system that leads us into temptation, that, 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 that attacks us. Uh, Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to this world. That means don't let the world press you into its mold. And so not only do you and I face attacks from Satan and from the, from the demonic realm, but we also face the, the temptation of a sinful world to be conf- pressed into its mold, to be conformed into the image of the world. And this is an ongoing thing. This is, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, watch, watch NFL football. Watch the commercials that come on. There's the world trying to press you into its mold, often in ways that are not glorifying to God. Well, the attack doesn't end there. 
Because you also have an enemy inside you, and the enemy is you. Your sinful flesh. Paul said this to the Galatians. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So there's this unholy trinity. Again, Satan's a counterfeiter. And there's this unholy trinity that we are up against. We're up against Satan in the demonic realm. We're up against a world system that is sinful. And we're up against our sinful flesh. And that unholy trinity conspires to let, lead us into temptation, to tempt us and to bring us into sin. And so we are called to walk circumspectly. We're called to be very careful. Now that's David's problem right there. David's problem is that he's starting to walk in the flesh and he's not walking in the power of the Spirit. And so instead of leading the fight, he stays home. Why? Why does, why does David stay home? Well, we can only speculate why he stayed home, but there's some clues here in the text. It says that, you know, again, that the, the Israelites destroyed the people of Ammon and, look at this word, besieged Rabbah. Now, what happens when an army besieges someone? Well, again, and I made mention to it in the beginning, they encircle, right? They cut off the enemy, and then they have to wait them out. And so as they, as they encircle them, as they, as they cut off their supplies, now what happens is they got to wait them out. And this is tedious stuff. This is tedious work. This is not the excitement of the, of the battle. You know, we used to, I used to experience that as a firefighter. People would say, oh, what's it like to fight a fire? I said, it's, it's fun for about, ten, for about five or ten minutes. Super exciting. And that's just a lot of hard work. After that, it's just the boring mopping up phase, which is just, you know, just think of the biggest trash pile that you've got to pick up, and now you've just soaked it with water, and now it's just dripping all this black, whatever. That's, you know, that's the majority of what putting out a fire is really like. Super fun, the very beginning. And then it's just tedious work. And so this is what is ahead of, of David and the nation of Israel. They're talking about besieging an enemy. Hey, super fun when we go and encircle them and now, well, now it's just a lot of tedious work. It takes a really long time. All the while, you got to live out in the field, got to live in a tent, right? It's no picnic. And it's very likely that this is the reason why David opted for the comfort of home. He's like, okay, I can go out and sleep in a tent for like a really long time, or I can stay here at home. Now, as you consider that, I want you to think about the application for you and me. This is super important. See, because in our day-to-day battle against Satan, against, against our sinful flesh, against the sinful world, listen, what we need to understand is oftentimes it's like that. It's like that a lot of times for the Christian, in that, hey, reading your Bible, praying every day, It's not always exciting stuff. Let's just be honest. It's not always exciting. It's needful, but sometimes it's just, it's this tedious stuff that I'm not willing to to engage in that. I'd just rather sit around in comfort at home. You know, a lot of times getting plugged into a growth group, making church a priority, you know what? It's going to require that you give up some comforts. You're like, oh man, that's good. That, that's gonna, that's gonna, I gotta give us some comfort. Yeah, I gotta go to church today. Come on, the Chargers are on today. Listen, they're two and seven. You're not missing that much. 
all right? The, the fact of the matter is, is that the choice, I want you to hear this, the choices you make today, they dictate whether or not your life explodes tomorrow. You might want to write that down. The choices you make today are going to dictate whether your life explodes tomorrow. Paul told the Galatians, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, he told the Romans, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so David here, he's starting to live for the flesh. He's starting to focus on himself. Verse 2, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Listen, first point is that defeat begins with inattention. The second point, if you're taking notes, is that defeat is a process and it's not an event. Defeat is a process and it's not an event. First thing I'd have you look at there in verse 2 is that David walked on the roof. You might want to circle that. Uh, nearby, you could write, there, write this, you could write, to walk without aim and purpose. Or you could just simply write, without aim and purpose. Because that's the idea of what this word means. This phrase, walked on the roof, it means that David was just sort of pacing back and forth. He really had no particular aim. He had no particular purpose. Now, I want you to hold that in mind, and I want you to compare that with what we've just read in 1 Peter 5.8 about how our enemy walks, all right? David is walking without aim and purpose. How does the enemy walk? Well, he walks with aim and purpose, and he makes due use of his opportunities. This is a stark contrast between the two. Whereas the enemy is walking with aim and purpose and, and looking to make opportunity, make, take advantage of every opportunity, David is just fat, dumb, and happy, doesn't have a clue. He's just walking without aim and purpose. Now, as you consider that, I want you to imagine every wildlife video you've ever watched in your entire life. Who's the one that gets eaten? It's the one who just is walking without aim and purpose. You've got the whole flock over here, or the whole herd over here, and everybody's, you know, and they're taking a step and looking around, and then you've got, you know, wingnut over here is just sort of... And you're like, dude, and, and what, what is the enemy doing? He's, all the while, man, he knows exactly what, he's like, dinner at 3 o'clock. You do not want to be dinner at 3 o'clock. And this is what David is. He's just walking about. And the next thing I'd have you notice is that from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. He saw a woman bathing. Now, you might want to circle that phrase, he saw. This is the Hebrew word, Ra'ah. And, and, and what it means is literally to inspect, to perceive, and to consider. And, and, and here's, here's the irony for me in this. Here you've got, an idea, you've got a guy, David, who all at the very same time, he's walking without aim and purpose. 
you know, picture wingnut at the, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, right? There he is. But what happens? What does he do as he walks without aim and purpose? Well, he's got something that he's inspecting. He's got something that he's perceiving. He's got something that he's considering. It's certainly not the fact that he needs to have his head on a swivel, walk circumspectly because the days he's living in are evil. No, what is he inspecting? What is he perceiving? What is he considering? It's the chick in the bath. That's what he's got his mind on. That's what he's got his attention on. The application in our life doesn't even need to be said. But I'll say it. (laughs) The enemy has got your number. And he's going after you. Now listen, let me just say this at this point. The focus here today, in context, is adultery. It's It's the temptation to forsake your vows. But listen, this applies to to every realm of sin. That there are those areas in our lives that we we should be hot on it and high and tight in in it to win it, that I got got my head on a swivel and I'm like, the enemy's looking to attack me. And And I need to be careful here in how I'm living my life. I need to really give heed to, hey, am I being distracted? Am I being deceived? Am I seeing something I ought not to see? Am I, am I being pulled to something I ought not to be pulled to? And so the context of our story is certainly adultery, but listen, the shoe fits in every temptation we're going to, fit, to, 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 to face as, as Christians. Now, so the irony, David, he won't ra'ah his own walk. He won't inspect, he won't perceive, he won't consider his own walk, but he will ra'ah, he will inspect, he'll perceive, he'll consider the naked girl in the bath. Now the same word, this word saw, it's used in Genesis 3.6 where Eve saw the forbidden fruit. You see, at first Eve ra'ad the fruit, if I can use the, the, the Hebrew phrase in that way. She, she, she saw the fruit from God's perspective. God had warned her, said, listen, in the day that you eat of this fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So Eve started out seeing the fruit in that way. That fruit will lead to death. It's it's not good. But what happened was, that's not the perspective that she continued in. She, she now, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, she raws the fruit. She inspects, she perceives, she considers it. From Satan's perspective. She's no longer seeing it from God's perspective. She sees it from Satan's perspective. Listen, here's how it says. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. And so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. Here's my point. Listen to me right now. Some of you are at this very point in your life. This is the threshold that some of you are at. That you're walking without aim or purpose. You're somewhere that you shouldn't be. And you're seeing what the enemy wants you to see. You're not seeing it from God's perspective. You're seeing it. You're expecting, you're, you're inspecting, you're considering something that's going to lead you to death. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Some of you, you're right at this threshold. And if that's you, I want you to hear that this right now, this moment, 
Write the date down. Write the time down. Write the place where you're sitting because at this moment, this is God's warning to you that you're about to lose everything. This is God's warning to you as it were sitting in the Apollo 13 capsule of your life saying, do not hit the cryostir. Don't flip that switch because you're going to blow up. Now again, the context here is adultery but applies to every single sin in our life. I want you to consider Jesus' words here. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now this is what's known as hyperbole. Jesus is not literally saying, gouge your eye out if you're, if you're addicted to pornography or cut your hand off if you're a thief or anything. He's not saying literally, it's a, it's a figurative language, it's hyperbole, it's an exaggeration for the point of saying, you better deal with your sin in extreme ways and you need to do whatever it takes to deal with that now because the alternative is you don't deal with it And what happens is that tomorrow's sins of commission are due to today's sins of omission. You omitted, you failed to deal with the sin today. And so what happened is you took the bait, you pulled the trigger. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin. That phrase causes you in the original language, it's it's the Greek word scandalizo. It comes from the word scandal on. You know what the scandal on was? You set up a trap, like when you're a kid, you know, I used to have a cat and I'd set up a box with a stick on it and a string to the stick and I'd wait for the cat to go under the box and I'd pull the stick out and hopefully you get the cat underneath there, you know, put kitty in jail, yes, you know. That stick, that's the scandal on. That's the trigger. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, for some of you, it's your right eye that's the trigger. For some of you, it's the right hand that's the trigger. And you got to be aware, what's the trigger that's causing you to sin? you got to see it for what it is. Listen to the writer of Proverbs. He says this. He's talking about a woman who leads a man into sin. He says, so she seduced him with her pretty speech, and she enticed him with her flattery. <coughs> and he followed her at once, like an ox going to the slaughter. He was like a stag caught in a trap, scandal on that's not the word used here, but that's the idea. Awaiting the arrow that would pierce its heart. It was like a bird flying into a snare, little knowing it would cost him his life. So listen to me, my sons, and pay attention to my words. Don't let your heart stir, stray away toward her. Don't wander down her wayward path, for she has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave, and her bedroom is the den of death. Now, right now, some of you are thinking, I'm good. That ain't me. Some of you are thinking, you know, this is, this, this, this is a great message for, for people that are engaged in adultery or have been engaged in adultery or are struggling with adultery, and, and, and I'm all good. Listen, the Bible warns, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. See, for David, I want you to get, this is simply the climax of something that's been going on in his life for 20 years. This is the first time he's committed adultery. 
But this, is, this has been going on for 20 years. He's got, had an ongoing lack of restraint and an indulgence of passion where women are concerned. David has been dis, disregarding God's plan for marriage for years. God had said, look, it, it ain't good for kings to multiply wives to themselves. I don't want it. And yet, what do we read? In 1 Samuel 25, he takes Abigail as his wife. He was married to Michael before that. But Saul took her away, so he replaces her. He takes Abigail. But then immediately, in the same, in the same breath, the, the verse tells us, he also took Ahinoam as his wife. And then you get to 2 Samuel 3, and you read that he took four more wives there as well. Here's the point. Sin is sequential. Sin is sequential. Listen, it happens, and that's what we read in verse 2. It says, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. So it, it, it happened, verse 1, in the spring of the year. And so sin happens, but it seldom just happens. It seldom just comes out of nowhere. It usually has a past. You can trace it back. It's crazy, you know, this tragic thing that's happened in Paris. These explosions that transpired. Now, just reading some news articles, I just went back. I read a news article for 20 years ago, prophesied this this very thing. It was able to say, look, here's the policies that that France has put in place, and here's where we're going to be in 20 or 30 years. Well, that time has come. That writer knew exactly what he was talking about. And so this is the thing in David's life. Sin is sequential. It doesn't just happen. It's been building. It's been building. And James talks about this in your life, in my life. Here's what he says. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. Listen, David's sin didn't just suddenly appear. He set himself up for this fall. He's planted the seeds for this a long time ago. This is something that's been growing for a long time. I ask you the question today, are you setting yourself up for a fall? And you might just want to write that down. Take a walk with it this week. Because immediately, we want to say, no, I'm not. I'm good. Hey, can I just tell you, that's one of my takeaways from this text. I've got to write this down. I've got to take a prayerful walk with it this week. Am I setting myself up for a fall? Do I have things in my life they're going to set me up for some future temptation and fall because I haven't dealt with it today. A sin of omission today is going to cause a sin of commission tomorrow. <clears throat> and I want you to get right now, listen. David is standing on the edge of a cliff right this second in our text. He is right there on the edge. He's one step away. Are you one step away? Are you right there on the edge in your life? Is that where you're at? See, in the next verse, David's going to nuke his life. His life's never going to be the same again. In the very next verse. Brings me to my third point. Defeat comes down to a defining moment. Defeat in your life, in my life. It comes down to a defining moment. 
See, because the defining moment here is that God gives David a way of escape. Gives him a way of escape. Listen, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Some of you have not yet sinned as David has sinned. Some of you today need to understand that you're on your way. You might go, oh, you know what, I'm good. Oh, that's not me. But there are things that have you well on the way to being in that place. You're laying the groundwork. And listen, it's only a matter of time and it's only a matter of opportunity. It's only a matter of time and it's only a matter of opportunity. And I want you to hear again, if that's you, today is your way of escape. It's your way of escape. I preached on this text, not this message, but I preached on this text at a men's retreat several years ago. And the Lord laid it heavy on my heart and I said, listen, some of you right now, you've got a key to replace and you need to come forward and you need to put the key up here at the altar. Some of you today, you, 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 you've, you've got, you got her name, you got her number, you got, you know, you've been flirting about, you need to come up today and you need to confess that. And, you need to, and this is your opportunity. And by God's grace, by the moving of His Holy Spirit at that men's retreat, men came forward and they confessed, that's me. It might be you today. And listen, you know, it might be you today. You go, yeah, you know what? I got, I got the key to the apartment in my pocket. It might be you today to where you say, you know, what am I doing? It might be you today. We're not talking about adultery in your instance. Maybe it's that, you know what? I'm well down the road to sin in this area of my life. Today is your way of escape. God's speaking to you from his word. He says, guess what? Here's an off-ramp. You can take it right now. And I want you to see that God is offering David that way of escape. What's he say there in verse 3? It says, so David sent and inquired about this woman, and someone said, here's the way of escape, pay attention, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Now, Here's the significance about what this person just said to David. David's like, hey, what's up with the hot chick next door? And somebody faithful, close to him, says, wait, wait, wait. You're talking about Eliam's daughter. You're talking about Uriah's wife. Now, David would have recognized those names. Eliam, listen, (laughs) he was among David's select group of soldiers called David's 30 mighty men. So, frankly, was Uriah the Hittite. Furthermore, Eliam was the son of Ahithophel, which was David's personal counselor. And so what God has just done with David was gave him a way of escape. He had somebody come to him and say, you are talking about some of your closest friends, and this is his daughter. This is his wife. This is who you're talking about. And it ought to be just that thing in David's life. It's like, what was I thinking? Right? I mean, that's what should have happened right here. 
And for some of you today is God saying, wake up, man. What are you, what are you thinking? Wake up. Way of escape right here today. What's the date today? November 15th today? Is today the 15th? November 15th, 2015. It's your way of escape. Take it. Take it. Take the way of escape. That guitar took a way of escape. <laughs> God might say the same thing to you today. God might be speaking to you today, and the enemy does not want you to hear this. Give me your eyes, give me your attention. Because what God might be saying to you today is, listen, that's your friend's wife. God might be saying to you, listen, that's the mother of your children. God might be saying to you today, listen, that's the person that you pledged before God that you were going to be faithful to. Listen, God might be telling you today, that's the, that is the girl whose father walked her down the aisle and placed her arm in your arm and gave her to you, trusted her to you. That's my daughter. There's a way of escape. God wants you to take it today. Which brings us to verse 4, and it says, Then David sent messengers... And he took her. Which means to say that he had sex with her and he also stole her. He took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. What's up with that? The Bible's just letting us know, guess what? She just now finished her ceremonial washing, which was required of the Israeli women. They'd go through and have their time of the month and so on, and then they would have to go through a ceremonial purification. And it's the Bible's way of making it very clear, because we're going to find out in the very next verse, if she gets pregnant, and the Bible wants us to know very clearly who's the father. She was clean from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And I just want you to imagine, just David. I mean, God just spoke to him in a loud and clear way and said, this is, this is a man's daughter. This is a man's wife. This ain't yours. Wake up, take the way of escape. And David said, I'm going to take her. And he takes her, and then he sends her home. And David's life's never going to be the same again. This is a turning point in the books of First and Second Samuel. God will forgive him. And if you've committed adultery, God will forgive you. But there's consequences for sin. If you're here today and you hear God's warning, I want you to hear that God's given you a way of escape. Take it today. If you're here today and you didn't take the way of escape, I'm calling you to repent. First John chapter 1 says this, If we're living in the light, as God is in the light, And we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar. And we're showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So I ask you the question, what's it going to be today? What will it be today? Are you going to be actively committing sin? Or are you going to be actively committed to Christ? That's the question.